Hello everyone, this is the Audience Explorer, a podcast for you as a founder or creator who wants to develop an audience for your product or service. I'm Matthias Bohlen. Hello, dear listeners of the Audience Explorer podcast. This is Matthias Bohlen again with another episode. Today, I'm happy to have Rob Fitzpatrick here. Hello, Rob. Hello, thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming. Rob is an entrepreneur. He has done it for 14 years and he's written three books about his learnings um, along the way. And uh, especially one book, which I'm uh, particularly fond of, it's The Mom Test, of course, how to talk to customers and figure out whether they're lying or not. And um, so plenty to stuff of stuff to talk about, Rob. And um, to get started, please tell us a little bit about your journey uh, up to now. I, I fell into entrepreneurship largely accidentally. I wanted to be an academic. And uh -huh. then I, I, on a whim, when Y Combinator was quite new back in 2006, I believe, we, I pitched my master's research, which was in experimental video games to, to YC. And... Paul Graham said, yeah, yeah, this isn't really a business. It won't work. It won't scale. But he, he liked what we built. We had a really good product team. And so he sort of uh, helped us come up with credible business ideas. And that set us down oh. the, the startup journey. So I dropped out of grad school, uh, moved to Boston, then California, then London, sort of following investors oh. and <laughs> never looked back. That, that first startup was a terrible fit for my personality, for my goals, for my strengths. So it was kind of an uphill battle when you're working against mm -hmm. your, your mm -hmm. natural inclinations. We were ended up in this like enterprise sales driven mess selling to oh, the advertising okay. and the media okay. industry, which really isn't what I wanted to be doing, but you know, it was fine. And we did that for three or four years. And since then I've built a bunch of different types of businesses, consumer products, stuff that gets marketed. We crowdfunded a physical board game. I built a mm. service business. I built, you know, a bunch of other tech products and now I'm doing stuff community led for nonfiction authors, building tools for indie authors. So there's been a whole mix of different, took a three year sabbatical in the middle also, because I was quite burned out and I just wanted to relax and enjoy life for a while. So I learned to sail and lived on a small sailing boat around France, England, Spain for three years. And oh, that's uh, beautiful. Yeah, no, oh yeah, it was, it was such a treat. And I thought that's what I wanted. I thought my whole goal was to retire early. So I, I raced toward that goal. And after uh -huh. a year or two of it, I was like, actually, I kind of like working on interesting stuff with fun people. So now I'm back into it. Great. How did you get into entrepreneurship at all? Was it uh, from your background? What, what was your background till then? I, I mean, video game design was what I studied in university. Ah, okay. And I, I was, you know, experimental video games, right? was what I was researching. And I, I plan to teach it because there's no commercial market for that stuff. And, uh -huh. or at least there wasn't back then. <laughs> and Yeah, but what I liked about academia was the idea that you got to pursue your interests. And yeah, I, I thought it was free of corporate bureaucracy, which is obviously not true, which I, I learned. And it's one of the reasons mm. I left. And so what attracted me to startups, and especially bootstrapping even more so, is, is that there's even less bureaucracy. It's kind of a, it felt like the purest way, the purest connection between what you think and what you do and the rewards you get. And that really appeals to me. Uh, and You know, we did investors in my first business and we ran mm -hmm. like the VC funded hyper growth thing for three or four years. But since then, I, I've been bootstrapping and working for myself, writing books, set up a publishing business, set up the agency, built tech products. And it's always been either by myself or with, you know, just a, a couple other people. And I, I really enjoy that that way of working. Yeah, bootstrapping is, is a very special thing to do. I think that when you have a VC, you already have a boss, right? Someone who, who is interested that everything is growing and always growth stuff and somebody who already tells you what to do, right? Our, our investors treated us so well and with so much respect, but oh, it okay. still creates pressure, you know, because mm -hmm. you have signed up, you've taken on this. For me, at least it felt like I'd taken on this serious obligation yeah. and I was trying to make this thing as big as possible. When I'm bootstrapping, I can talk to my business partner, Devin, and say, uh, say, hey, you know, I'm pretty burned out. I need a couple of weeks off to recover, you know, get some mental, yeah. mental space. And probably I could have said that to the investors and they would have been fine with it, but I never felt like I could. And so it was because of just the situation. I was putting all this crazy pressure on myself. You know, it was my first business. I was 24 at the time. I was pretty young. Oh, and yeah, I had yeah. to handle that stuff. Yeah. It's like a lot of money. I'd never seen a million dollars before. And suddenly I was like, wow, these people gave me a million dollars. Like, ah, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> so it's all this like self-imposed pressure that I, I didn't yeah. handle very well. 
Yeah, the 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 twenty four year old with a million dollars. It's amazing. It's a, an, an, a be, really big opportunity, but also a big obligation. I think. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Yeah. And how did you come into this uh, mom test thing? How does this, this uh, customer development thing? What, what what was the reason for that? So we started up in 2007 with the first business. And so Paul Graham was saying, go talk to your customers. He has this line where he says, the only two things or three things you should be doing before you've launched is uh, talking to customers, writing code, and mm -hmm. uh, exercising and hanging out with your loved ones, basically maintaining oh, your basic okay. <laughs> emotional health. He added that third one after you know uh, a couple of years later. And so I was like, okay, talk to customers, got it. And then when we raised our, our, our you know next round from, from VCs, they were like, mm, Go talk to your customers, ask your customers what they want. And I was trying, you know, I, I read Steve Blank's books. I read all the mm -hmm. sales books mm -hmm. and I was like, yes, this makes total sense. But when I tried it, it didn't work for me because and I, I thought it was working, but we were getting lied to. I'd say, hey, customers, what do you want? They'd say, we want this. And then we'd spend six months building it and they, they'd go, never mind. I was like, ah, yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that can yeah. only happen so many times before you go out of business. And it was actually one of my advisors, a fellow named Peter Reed really amazing dude in, in London. And he came with me to a, a sales meeting we had with one of the major film studios in LA. Uh -huh. And cause he was sort of saying, he was, he was like, Rob, it sounds like you're doing the right things. I don't know why it's not working. I need to watch you. And so he, he actually came, he flew to LA with us and, uh, or well, he, I guess he was going to LA anyway, but for whatever, he came with me to the meeting with Sony. And after five minutes, he sort of took over the meeting for me and we ended up closing the deal. And oh. afterwards he goes, he goes, okay, I know, I now know exactly what you're doing wrong. And having seen him like catch me in my mistake and then do it properly. I was like, wow, I see what you're doing. Right. And that was, I couldn't have gotten that from the books, but I got it from someone being in the meeting with me, like being there as a coach or a mentor. And, you know, after that it slowly started to improve, but by then we're already two and a half years into the business, you know, like the economy had collapsed in the 2008 financial crisis. It was yeah, a hard time. Yeah. It wasn't easy to get more money and we, we just weren't going fast enough. So that business by then was already dead. We just didn't know it yet. Uh, but that was when I started to learn. And it, it like that one experience, I was like, the pieces started clicking. Mm -hmm. And then over mm -hmm. time, as I understood the sales side, I was able to work backwards from there to the Custess side, understand the mistakes I'd made. And then the mom test, it, I'm an introvert, right? I, I'm more comfortable writing code than, than chatting to strangers. Ah, I'm never going to be me. comfortable yeah. chatting to strangers. <laughs> and so I was trying to find a way to do like the Steve Blank style customer development in a way which suited my kind of introvert techie personality. And so that turned into this and was also time efficient because I was always very conscientious. The time I spent talking to customers is time I'm not programming. And so it's valuable. You need to know that you're programming the right thing, right? Like right. sometimes you, one hour conversation yeah. can save you six months of coding. Absolutely. But I was very aware. It's like, is it comfortable? Is it authentic to my personality? And is it time efficient? And so I came up with this casual, quick conversational approach, which is, you know, the mom test. And it really resonates with, with technical people with no sales experience, but even some salespeople like it because they go, oh, you know, I was pitching too much. I was being too convincing. So I wasn't uh -huh. getting the truth. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I, I I'm astonished that you you ask yourself the question: Is this authentic? Does it resonate with my true personality? I find that a very 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 good question to have. It it wasn't. It was more pragmatic than than moral, uh, or uh -huh. because I found that if it doesn't align with my personality, I, I might be motivated enough to force myself to do it for a week or two, but I'm not going to continue doing it. Yeah. Whereas it's if not it's something that feels honest and enjoyable and like, for example, the, the best hack I found for business is to pick customers that you enjoy hanging out with. Oh, yeah. So right now, yeah. I love talking to people who write nonfiction books because they care about a topic deeply and they're an expert in it. They're always fascinating to talk to. So I love hanging out with authors, even aspiring oh. authors or in-progress authors. And so now that I have them as my customer segment, it's incredible for me because customer development doesn't feel like a chore. It feels like a pleasure because they're people I would want to go to the bar with and talk to anyway. And so just by the same was true when I was selling to universities, like I hate advertisers, right? I don't respect advertisers. And my first business was serving advertisers. Oh, so you can imagine yeah. how difficult customer development and sales is when you don't even like or respect your customers. I would uh, never go to the bar and hang out and have a coffee with an advertiser, right? No, But no. I would with a professor. I would with someone who ran a university. I would with an author. I would with an entrepreneur. So that's like an incredible hack. And that was part of it also. It's like customers you like, talk to them like humans. 
find ways to hang out with them, keep it casual, understand them like you would a friend. All these pieces come together and suddenly you have this very deep understanding of your customer's worldview, which is like a product design superpower. Yeah, and it felt yeah, like it took absolutely. zero emotional effort, right? It was all comfortable and fun. So that, that's been my like trick. And I apply the same to community. I apply the same to Twitter. I apply the same to email. Like it's gotta be fun for me and like something I'd be doing anyway for its own sake. Otherwise I'm not gonna follow through with it. Uh, so this really shines through what you through what you say. You, I, I'm I'm experiencing the joy even even through this video medium here. <laughs> it's it's amazing. And how did you get into this uh, book writing? Um, um, you said uh, book writers uh, authors are your your customers now. How did that happen? So I've I wrote my first book, The Mob Test, in 2013. I self published yeah. because uh, I talked to publishers and. Publishers in, as an industry are really good at helping a successful author to be bigger, but they're very bad at evaluating unproven first-time authors. Ah. So if you're a first-time unproven author without a big platform, you get really just terrible deals. The sort of deal if like a venture capitalist offered it to you, you'd laugh them out of the room. And publishers <laughs> offer this to first-time authors. So I was like, oh. so anyway, I self-published and I was like, okay, that was pretty fun. And it ended up becoming a pretty meaningful uh, revenue stream for me. Uh, it kind of grew each month through organic word of mouth and Like after a year or two, I was making 3000 a month from it. You know, the oh, next year I was making 5000 a month. Now I'm making 12000 a month from that one book. And it's like, okay, this is like meaningful income because, you know, it's designed like a long lasting product that can grow through, through word of mouth. And you have to do some stuff. You have to obviously create the original audience. Otherwise you yeah. can recommend it. But cool. So for me, like I'd seen the impact of, of, of the book and it, the book didn't succeed because of my reputation. Like I have a reputation now because the book succeeded because the book proved useful to people. And that as well felt very pure to me. It felt very free of bureaucracy and bullshit. Cause it's like, oh yeah, it, if it's a useful idea and it's presented in a way that people can uh, internalize then then great. Anyway, so going through that experience, I was like, what, what do you look for in an audience? Like one of the things I look for is like, it's a group I understand and like hanging out with and yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I kind of get that they have sharp problems. And I saw all of that with, with indie authors. However, I couldn't find a way to market to them because typically people, especially in nonfiction, they write like one book and then they move on with their career. Uh, ah. And so they're not like social media marketers who sign up for newsletters and read blogs. And they're always trying to keep learning about the same thing. Yeah. For nonfiction authors, writing a book is like a moment in their career and then it's done. So you can't really build the mailing list. You can't really put them on a subscription. You can't like, it's a very difficult audience to build, or at least I couldn't figure out how to do it. Fiction's a little bit different because once people start writing fiction, they keep writing fiction. That's right, But yeah. Nonfiction's not like that. So I was like, meh, super desirable. I see the problems, I get them, I, I like them, but like, how do I find them? How do I get the audience, you know? <laughs> yeah, exactly. That, now it becomes interesting to me because that's my specialty. How did you get this audience, right? Yeah, so, it's so a difficult my, audience. Yeah, they've been in my notebooks. I had business model sketches. I had ideas. I had product ideas. I had wireframes for, for 10 years. I could, I could show you like old diagrams of product ideas in this category, but I never built them because I couldn't crack it. And then for my third book recently, like my second book also did pretty well. That was about education design because education mm -hmm. is one of the things I love. And um, I built this little education agency. We bootstrapped it up to about a million dollars a year and then shut it down because we had four founders and we all wanted different things from life. And oh, so we reached okay. a strategic impasse. We're like, ah, eh, it's fine. So we took the profits. We, we took a nice dividend and we, we shut it down. And afterwards I wanted to capture the learning. So I wrote the second book. That one also did well and it behaved the same way. And I was like, okay, I think I, most books don't behave this way. Most books yeah, peak at yeah. 12 weeks and then never recover. And people are always like, you can't make money from books. It's impossible. Um, and so I was like, okay, there, there's something about the product design approach that I get for books, for nonfiction that other people don't get. And so I, I wanted to document that. And that became the current one, Write Useful Books. And this is a long story, but I realized that once I had Write Useful Books, I was like, wow, that becomes the entry point and the, the, the top of funnel marketing and like the education that enables the rest of the business model for this customer segment. So once I was writing the book and it was resonated with beta readers and I was seeing signs of early organic growth and word of mouth within beta readers, mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute, I can now build the software because the book will tell them about the software. And then I had this problem like, how do you, how do you carry people from awareness when they read the book till six months later when they're ready for the software? It's like, ah, community. So 
and that also solves the uh, this problem they're like they're only going to use the software for a moment within their book's journey so a subscription doesn't make sense but you go okay we'll call it a paid community and they get the software uh, for free uh. and so then suddenly you've extended the the relevance of the subscription from three months to say 12 months then it goes okay can i build a piece that's like post um, publishing support that adds an extra three months to the retention. So now we're building up this stack and it's still a very new business. Um, I think last month we did about 7,000. It's been live for a couple months. So we're still in the beginning of it, but so far it's it, already I'm pretty, pretty good. That's pretty good. 7,000 MRR. So it's already pretty good for a few months into the project. It's, yeah, well, it's amazing. If, if you don't count the two years I spent working on the book. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And what does this um, software do? So if you are a nonfiction author, why would you want to use uh, the software and for what purpose? The software in a funny way is kind of like customer development for books. It, it's for beta reading. So it's the oh. early qualitative and quantitative data about how readers are engaging with your manuscript before you've mm -hmm. launched it. Because mm -hmm. you want to find out where people get bored, where they get confused, where they think it's tedious, where they think you're full of garbage. Like You want to find that out before you launch. You don't want to find yeah, that out yeah. in an Amazon review. <laughs> and there's people often look at like qualitative or they get, it's the same problems with customer development. You, you, you like show someone your manuscript and they go, oh, it's amazing. And you're like, okay, that's a compliment and opinion. That doesn't help me build a better yeah, product. Exactly. And so we felt we needed to build like a whole custom tool. We used Google Docs for it before my co-author and I. And we're like, okay, that kind of works, but it's like, it's pretty tedious when you have 50,000 words and 500 comments at a time. And it's like, uh, and so we're like, this is a sharp pain and it directly correlates with the book success. So that, that's the, the first problem we wanted to solve. It's called Help This Book. Um, and currently about, I think about 12 authors have used it and launched their books through it. It's still in private alpha. Um, and we're basically, people sign up, they read the book, they join the community. Then we pull people out of the community, onboard them onto the software, they use that. And then there's a fourth layer which is based on the quantitative and qualitative performance of their book during beta reading, we extend publishing offers. And we extend publishing offers and we publish them ourselves. So we cover all the costs of their editing oh, and production wow. and everything. And we focus specifically on the authors who the publishing industry undervalues. These first time unproven, unplatformed authors because we have their, their beta reading data. And so we can offer them way better deals. It's like crazy the deals we're able to offer to authors. And we, we've only published one so far, but you know, there, there's more in the pipeline. Yeah. And that's like the full stack. So it's like book, community, software, publishing is like the business stack. Wow, you're building an empire, right? <laughs> right, but bootstrapping. And we're, we're trying to be relaxed also. The team right now is three people. It's oh, me, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, Teresa, my girlfriend, she's over there. She runs our like ads and publishing. Uh, okay, uh, <laughs> Teresa. <laughs> and then my best friend and, you know, longtime co-founder, Devin Hunt, um, he built list.com and like, we all work half time. It's very much like a relaxed business, but we're also being ambitious with it. We think it's a huge market and we're, you know, we have big plans for the industry, but trying to do it in a calm, independent way. Great. Great. I like that. It sounds totally attractive. Um, and the, the help these help a book. What's it called? Help this book. Help this book. Help this book. I think I use it already um, as a reviewer for Arvid Karl's book. Oh, yeah. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Can yeah. that be? Ar Arvid yeah. used it for the embedded entrepreneur. Yeah. Ramley sure. John used it for um, product, product -led, led onboarding. Or product led onboarding. Yeah. Um, Michelle Hansen used it for Deploy Empathy. There's been, uh, been quite, a few, quite a few books that have come out recently that have been done their beta reading through it. Perfect. A amazing. I, I seem to know them all. So there must be some connection. There must be some kind of community around this concept of bootstrapping a book, right? It, a lot of product people have naturally approached their books like this. You know, they, they want the data, they want the analytics, they want to mm -hmm. iterate mm -hmm. on them. Um, and it's it's not surprising it's just everyone's had to kind of roll their own solutions or do it tediously so we're just taking this existing behavior um, making it easy for the people who are already doing it and then also telling everyone else it's like hey there's a better way to write a book so our early adopters were kind of already doing it they were just like yeah i, I, I was just chatting with a dude on twitter and, and he basically showed me one that he built for him himself he just custom code that he made for his own book oh. and it's like all right you know People are doing this. It's what you want to see in an early adopter audience. And then our mainstream uh, mainstream audience who will join later are the people who have to be like convinced that beta reading is a good idea. Yeah. And that's kind yeah. of what the book is about. The book's like the manifesto, the education, the, hey, this works. And it's kind of a complex uh, business model because it's got all these pieces together. And 
this is why stuff like this has been in my notebook for so long and I haven't done it because like I, I wouldn't have felt like I had the credibility to, to run the publishing. I wouldn't have felt like I had the, the audience to like the, all, all these pieces were missing, right? Yeah, and it's a step-by-step -step networks view, thing, yeah. Yeah, my, my view on career entrepreneurship, especially as a bootstrapper and indie hacker, is that over time, you're building these compounding founder resources, like insight, skills, connections, network, audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you can carry those resources with you from project to project and company to company. And as they grow and as they compound, you get access to new opportunities that you wouldn't have been able to go after at the beginning of your entrepreneurial career. Yeah. And yeah. So now I've been doing it for 15 years and it's like, oh yeah, like now I can get a little bit fancier with what I'm doing and I can go after more complex stuff in a, in a calm way. Whereas I wouldn't have been able to do this earlier in my career. That's also an interesting point. Uh, it's kind of network effect between between all the skills you get, all the people you know, all the topics you have been into. And yeah, it's it's um, things are happening now that wouldn't have been possible before. That's right. And about this first moment when you say you open this beta list um, where people could join, what do you think? Uh, there are projects where, where such a beta list takes off and there are projects where it doesn't. Um, or for example, the people sign up Uh, and then when you arrive with the actual product and say, yeah, yeah, no, you can, now you can try. People say, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, it's three months in now. So um, I'm, I'm in a totally different uh, uh, fairy tale now. So uh, what do you think? What, what's the difference between uh, the ability to, to, or what's the reason for the ability to, to take uh, people from the beta list into an actual product trial? <laughs> There's never going to be 100% certainty with these early indicators, but they give you little pieces of evidence. So for example, mm -hmm. um, the, the ultimate value proposition of everything we're doing for independent authors is, is like, hey, you want your book to be more successful. Yeah. Like there's, you, you probably need some support and help and tools along the way. Yeah. Yes or no. Like, so we are kind of able to validate that core problem. We didn't even need the software for it because we got a lot of that validation before the book had even been released by what was happening with our beta readers. And even before that, um, my first MVP for a book is coaching conversations. So I go to people and I say, hey, I remember you once said you wanted to write a nonfiction book. Do you still care? Like, let's talk. And I try to help them, you know, I say like, let's talk through your book. Let me help you with it. And sometimes people go, nah, it's okay. Uh, send me a link if you write a blog post about it. And it's like, okay, that person doesn't actually care that much. Uh, okay. And, and so by, by piecing it together, it's kind of like in the mom test, there's this idea of before you're able to ask for money, you can ask for time. Yeah. And time is like a smaller commitment compared to money, but it still means something. Yeah. And so before writing a book, like, Someone beta reading is a big commitment of time, right? Someone paying the cover price of the book is e yeah. more or doing an early access or a pre-order that's financial before that you get time. And even before that, there's the smaller unit of time, which is like the coaching conversation. Like, let me help you for free. Give me, give me an hour of your time and let me help. And, and so like progressing through this is like, I'm getting more and more evidence that there's this group who cares about doing nonfiction differently than mm -hmm. the traditional public. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, okay, um, as for the beta reading software itself, we looked for analogs. So that is a case where it very much relies on the user experience of the product. Uh, it's not a sharp unsolved problem. So you can think of there's like 10 X product improvements and there's like unsolved problems. Yeah. Uh, it is not an unsolved problem because you can use Google docs or you can email a PDF. Yeah. It's, it's that it's just 10 times nicer. Uh, and so when that's the case, you kind of, you still want to understand your audience, but we do because we've been playing in this industry for a long time, but then you lead with a prototype uh, because you, you can't, you can't be like, imagine Google docs, but better P people don't get that. You can't have that conversation. Yeah, that's right. And so we built it. And what we did is one of our important uh, theses for the product is that it has a viral loop built into it where people who beta read nonfiction books also tend to be the sort of people who write nonfiction books. And so we mm. believe that when an author brings their beta readers, those people will also become future authors, which will simplify our marketing. So we're like, okay. And we saw that so far for each book that has been used, that's run through Help This Book, we've seen 15 other people sign up for the waiting list. 
So we're like, okay, a 15 to one viral loop is pretty strong. We'll take that. You know, obviously there's still going to be friction of the acquisitions and blah, blah, blah. There's a whole funnel yeah. yet to go, but like, all right, that's one step of the viral loop. And it's like pretty good. <laughs> and we, we've seen it actually improve since then. So we're like, that's good. And we're like, I think one of the myths about validation and about mom tests, I'll, I'll try to clarify this more when I, when I write the updated 10 year version is that you're going to get perfect certainty. You're not going to get perfect certainty. No, what you're trying no. to do is like answer a few of the questions, right? Like if you can answer a few of the risks uh, and it's like, I feel that's the way we did it. The book answered some of them, the viral loop from early beta readers answered some of them, this something else answered some of them. And there were analogs in the industry also. We actually tried to acquire, we tried to do a micro acquisition of another beta reading tool that's built for fiction. Uh -huh. Because when we decided uh -huh. to go down the route of this product, we thought, we, we looked around, you know, and there was another one and it didn't have, um, I, I don't want to share any of their private metrics, but they like, they had a, a meaningful number of fiction authors who were paying mm -hmm. $10 a month to use it and a bunch more in a free tier. And it, it was like a nice little business, but it wasn't their main thing. It was clearly a side project that was generating a little bit of revenue for them. And so we got into a micro acquisition conversation because we thought it would be easier to build on top of what they'd already built than to start yeah, from scratch. Sure. In the end, we disagreed about the multiplier by a frustratingly small amount. It, we were off by like oh. 0.5 of a revenue multiple in, in like what they wanted versus what we could pay. And so it fell apart. So we're like, okay, we'll, we'll have to build it ourselves. Um, and uh but that was also encouraging to us too, because we we're like, okay, well, here's an, an analog of um, another similar product, different industry, fiction, nonfiction, but it's like they have paying users. So that gives me a little bit more confidence. Yeah, it gives them more confidence. Yeah. We're, we're just like pulling in data from where we can. None of these is a guarantee, but it all adds up. And it made us feel like, okay, this is worth, you know, carving out a chunk and, and building a credible prototype. Yeah, and when we go back to this moment with the with the coaching call uh, with the coaching conversation, uh, what kind of people were that uh, in in the stage um, with respect to stage? Were were it early signups from your beta waiting list, or what? Or in what stage were they just before you asked them for this coaching conversation? Um, so, it started with people I happen to know, <laughs> okay. as it often does. You know, you go, who do I know that's in this industry? Yeah. And then sometimes founders complain, they go, but I don't know anyone in the industry. That's unfair. And it's like, well, you get to choose which industry you start in. Like, why not start in an industry you already have some knowledge and connections into? And if not, it goes back to pick customers you like hanging out with, right? Because like, yeah. if, it, if it's a, a, an industry you don't know, but you really admire or you love, then it's like, you're going to enjoy finding your way into that industry, going to the events, make, anyway. It was authors. I just thought back and I'm like, who are the people I know who have said, I'd mm -hmm. love to write a book someday. And I emailed a few of them. I said, Hey, you know, let me help you out. Is that still a thing? And what I did is before we had the first meeting, this is specific to books, but you know, whatever the, the, I, I wrote a little like bullet point list and it ended up being 10 pages long. Just like, do this, don't do this. Think about this. This is important. This is uh, important. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I said, before we talk, just read this. Because like that way we can spend our time talking about your problems instead of me just lecturing you, which isn't going to be helpful for either of us. And so they did. That's and then, very good. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the more you're talking during one of these conversations, same applies to customer interviews. The more you're talking, the worse you're doing. So yeah. if there's like a data dump, it's good to do it in advance. And then you can spend the meeting listening and answering questions and actually learning. So we did that. And um, the, the coolest thing, it came from the very first, uh, from a friend of mine named Veronica in Barcelona. And after the meeting, she goes, she asked so many more questions. I wrote down what her questions were. Then I followed up and I said, hey, here are the answers to your questions. And suddenly my 10 page outline had become 30 pages. Oh. And she goes, can I send this to a few of my friends? I know so many people who need this information. I'm like, that's a good early indicator, right? That like the book has word of mouth triggers <laughs> and it's just these pieces. And over time you move from the friendly first contacts, the people you kind of know, or, or you have a connection to, and there you're less worried about burning bridges or being an idiot. You know, yeah, you, you can't yeah. make a fool of yourself. Um, and this is also true for customer interviews. If you're like, I'm terrified of it. Well, start with friendlier people. Like, you mm -hmm. know, mm -hmm. don't force yourself to do something you're terrified of. Find a way to make it less terrifying. <laughs> and then over time, it's like, uh, who were the beta readers? Well, the original beta readers were people who happened to be whatever in my Twitter orbit or on my mailing list and yeah. whatever. And you don't need that many. And then who was the next group? Well, it was people they recommended it to. And then who was next? It's like, well, at that point, I started treating it like a paid product. 
And I switched from it being free beta reading to paid early access. Um, and we did about, I think, $10,000 in paid early access, which was basically people paying me to give me free editing, which is pretty awesome, right? You, just a moment. People paying you to get you free editing. So when I had, what, <laughs> how does that work? So beta reading, I say, Hey, please beta read my manuscript. It's, it's, it's ugly and messy. Right. Yeah. But I would really appreciate your feedback. Please give yeah. me your time. At a certain point. I'm like, look, it's nowhere near finished. It's still a mess. But like, if you want to see the early version, you need to pay me. And so they paid $24 oh. to buy early access yeah. to provide feedback, to help me make a better book. Amazing. Which is totally. incredible. Yeah. And that was like $10,000, I believe. And then those also became my early testimonials and reviews on Amazon. They became my early word of mouth. They became my early everything. And it's like, by that point, I knew, and this applies to any product. These are generalizable principles, right? You don't want to charge money when it's just a landing page because then yeah. you're putting yourself in a yeah. position to have been an asshole because you don't know if you're <laughs> going to be able to deliver. Yeah. Uh, so at the beginning, maybe you ask for something else, right? The time, the email address, you ask for something. And as you progress, right. you're able to ask for more and more, but you start asking for what you can ask for as early as possible. You know, and so like I felt like twenty-four dollars uh, early why access. Why didn't I know this? Uh, <laughs> no, this sounds so simple. What you're telling me, and I say, hey, this must be. Uh, this is obvious, right? But it is not obvious. This is non-obvious stuff. This is. Yeah. Uh, as you de-risk the product and feel more confident that you're going to be able to deliver what you promised. Yeah. You ask for more and, and like the size of what you ask for tracks along with the maturity of the product and the business until at a certain point you're charging launch prices. And, uh, I actually, this is kind of weird, but I actually charge more for early access than I do for, for, for launch because I want to isolate the most excited early adopters, yeah. because that's who I want to be paying attention to for feedback. So people are like, Oh, how, how steeply should I discount? It's like, don't discount, charge them more. If anything, mm. like isolate your early adopters. Right. Uh, and, and how much more do you charge as a percentage? I didn't do much more. I, I did $24 for the early access and the finished book is 19. Oh, and so okay. it was like, so a it was a few bit, dollars yeah. more. Um, and, and they, they got a lot of stuff. They got like, you know, it was certainly worth it for them. They got a ton of access. They got lifelong access to the community. They got, yeah. The audiobook, the PDF, the paperback. Like I, I tried to make sure they were like, this is oh, amazing. Wow. Yeah. But but I didn't make it cheap, right? Like uh -huh. and as soon as I can, uh, as soon as I could, once the book was getting closer, I was like, okay, now like early access is a subscription. So I cranked it up again and I was like, it's no longer $24, it's now 19 per month. And that transitioned into our like uh final community model. Yeah. And then over time we're gonna increase that. Our target is to get it up to about $49 a month, but never higher than that. But right now we're at 19. Um, and we'll just grandfather people in. So there's a group that got it forever on that early access. There's a group that's getting it locked in forever now at 19. And, you know, as, as we continue to round out the, the offering, and we hope that it's like a, a cheap way to get like the majority of the benefit a traditional publisher offers. And, and then you still keep all the rights and royalties from your book is our, our long-term goal. Wow. I'm totally blown away. I, I have to think about that <laughs> because what I see is you could write this down as a number of steps. It doesn't only apply to book writing. It, does, it, it applies to, to any business that you can structure in a way that, like um, offering a little value at uh, upfront, asking people for the time, then offering more value and so on and so on. It's amazing. Uh, this is yeah. great. I say in the mom test that uh, the, the point of early revenue is not the revenue, it's the learning. You're, you're using yeah. the early revenue to confirm that you're on the right track. So you're not trying to optimize the revenue, or at least yeah. I'm not early on. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to be like, do they care? Because if they don't, I want to know now so that I can avoid wasting my time or, or so that I can fix things and find either whether that means changing the value proposition or changing the customer segment or changing the way I describe it. Like, you know, you, you don't want to bang your head against the wall. And it's yeah. nice. I, I exactly. have a... I, I built a little silly uh, no-code product the over two weekends just as a fun thing, because uh, I'm learning. I can code, but I like everyone's going crazy about no-code, and I'm like, hey, you know, you got to learn the tools to stay stay in the loop. Yeah. So I found one called Browserflow, which basically automates like clicking around. It's kind of like um, a visual web scraper, so you automate clicking around websites, and it kind of records oh. it. Mm -hmm. And I built a thing for for authors that tracks their Amazon ratings. 
each hour across all the different regional stores and all the different categories and stuff. So ah, it, it does it by by scraping, right? Yeah, Going yeah, to Amazon yeah. and and looking for the for the results. Exactly, and ah. so they don't need to log in or anything like that. And it was fun. It was two weekends, like fun yeah. little project. And then after that, I'm like, kind of works. I put up a landing page. Uh, it's called Amazon Alerts, and I was like. Kind of works, kind of buggy, but you know, hey, like who wants it? And uh, you know, right now there's like five paying customers paying $10 a month. And I'm like, okay. And it, it's buggy though. So what's happening is every time their payments click through, I immediately refund them for that month. But the fact that they had to put in their credit card details shows me that they have intent to purchase. Yeah. So I've got like, I've got real user data, like helping me find all the edge cases and bugs. I know I'm not wasting my time because from their perspective, they were buying it. And then afterwards I was sort of like, Hey, you know, here's the situation. Here's how I'm dealing with it. If, you know, and it's, it's been, it's just this, it's the same concept, but it's really hard to explain because it's different for every product. And so all these checklists that people try to make, like do these exact steps in this exact order. Yeah. It doesn't really work. It, it's, it, it, it sort it, of it, works, but it doesn't really work. Exactly. It's training wheels. It's a way to get started. But yeah. as, as you master this skill, uh, you, you want to drop the training wheels and start thinking at each stage of your own, your own, your own business journey. And I'm sure you know this, you've been through this just as much as I have. Like you start thinking like, okay, given where I'm at now, which information's easy to get? Like, what can I de-risk in like an 80-20 time efficient way? What's the low hanging mm -hmm. fruit? And what's mm -hmm. the stuff that's going to be just impossible to de-risk and it's not worth the effort. And I'm just going to need to leave that as an open risk because there's not a practical way for me to get that information in a, yeah. in a time efficient way. And so, you know, you, you got to leave some risk in there, but you, you like, if it's easy to answer, answer it. It's like, you know, you get 20% certainty here, 30% certainty here, 80% for this one. You go, eh, is that enough? You know, and, and you take the next steps and then it's a new set of questions. But that's that's a hard thing to teach to someone who's never been through it before. So, uh, you know, yeah. people use their checklists. <laughs> it's kind of it, it kind of like it, the mental model behind it is much more important than the concrete steps that you take. Mm. For example, if you think in terms of risk, de-risking things, getting data from somewhere, judging that data, um, making decisions based on that data, it's it's much more important to teach people these these mental models instead of exact this checklist and you're done, right? Because it doesn't work. Yeah. Um, but the mental model may be adaptable to to different categories of products and different um, creative stuff. Exactly. My, my friends joke that I've written the same book three times because it's basically the same, this process we've just been describing, just applied to startups with the mom test, applied uh -huh. to education design with the workshop survival guide, ah, and then applied okay. to books with write useful books. And each of them is just taking this same like mental process of like, what are the unknowns and how do I chip away at them in a way which is comfortable and time efficient? Mm -hmm. You do it for education, you, you do it for everything. And uh Like someone, someone who got that model, they wouldn't need to read all three books, right? Because they're like, they get the model and they're like, yeah, I can just apply it now. But but people really benefit from the practical applications when they're new to a space. So it's like, okay. Yeah, they see it. They, they like, people like examples, for example. Uh, yeah. yeah, as an example, people like examples. <laughs> yeah. And about this community of authors now, uh, don't you find community building hard? I, th oh, yeah. I think it, it requires a special skill. I had um, uh, Rosie Sherry on my podcast, for example, and she she's amazing. I've been learning so totally much from her. Totally amazing. And uh, I, I think this is a special gift, isn't it? I think it's learnable. Uh, I think that it's going to be the same thing I experienced with sales, where the first wave of people doing it are the ones who are naturally good at it. Mm -hmm. So the... Mm -hmm. And this is why I had to write the mom test. And this is why sales books didn't help me because they were all written by people who were naturally good at sales. Oh. That doesn't mean that other types of people can't do it, but like a natural salesperson is terrible at explaining sales to an introvert exactly. because they don't it's know what that's Because like. they don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And so it took like me in the case of sales and customer to be like, well, I suck at this. I am like the world's worst salesperson and customer development. Like I tried, I went out of business. I was so bad at it. Right. Even though I was spending <laughs> 40 hours a week doing it. And it took me to be like, well, let me write the guide. That's not about how to go from naturally good to world-class, but yeah. how to go from naturally terrible to functional. That's yeah. what uh, the mom test is, is, is about. That's what it promises. And that's really important for people. That's what I needed in my first business was to be functional. I didn't need to be the world's best because yeah, once, right. I'd, once I'd taken the first few steps myself, I could have hired that expert salesperson to optimize it. I just need to prove it out in the early stages. So 
I think that community, my read on it is the same, where right now the people who are doing community and succeeding a community are naturally good at it. Mm -hmm. I am not. For me, it's been a nightmare to try to get even like baseline functional at a community. <laughs> and I feel that like <laughs> once I've worked my way through that, I'm going to be able to describe it in a way that might resonate with you, for example, as someone who's not a natural community person. But right, right. now it's like all the all the natural people talking to each other. And it, it like makes no sense to people like you and me. <laughs> yeah, the, nat the natural people say something like, yeah, you just got to help people to connect and you just got to make them. And always this word just I'm, I wonder this this just is um, it's not just for me. Right. It's, <laughs> so I'll, I'll, I'll describe a couple building blocks that I think are important right now. Uh, so one is you've got an onboarding ramp, uh, which is about setting an aspiration. So a shared goal, uh -huh. and then bringing your new members to both buy into that goal as being worth the journey and mm -hmm. also carrying them to their first win, which makes them feel like, uh -huh. wow, I got one meaningful step closer. And it was because of this group. Mm -hmm. So that's your first month. The first month is uh, essentially a trial period for any community because they bought into the promise, but, but every community has a high time cost and a high interruption cost. And so the first month is about demonstrating to a new user, they, they buy into the goal, but you're like showing them that you can actually get them a step closer to it and that the interruptions and the time cost are worthwhile. So that's like one piece. Another piece is everyone's busy, so they naturally drift away. So you're looking mm -hmm. for a heartbeat mm -hmm which is a repeatable process. Some people use live events. Some people use content like a newsletter. Some people use whatever, uh, community rituals. So there's a heartbeat that re-engages them at a regular period, brings them back in, uh -huh. right? And by bringing them back in repeatedly, you're given the opportunity to change behavior, which again, brings them to the next little win, which makes them feel like, yes, I, I get this. And the vanity metric of community is engagement. Uh, every engagement is the easiest thing to measure in yeah. communities because you can see how many Slack messages people are sending or whatever, but it's a vanity metric. It's very misleading. And in some ways it, it's, it's negative because every engagement is also an interruption. And oh, what, yeah, it increases the interruption cost for the others. Exactly. Yeah. And so like, in some cases that's driving your best potential users away. So in my group, like the goal I'm thinking of, we have about 200 members now in the nonfiction mm -hmm. authors community. Mm -hmm. And Their goal is to write a number one best-selling book that grows organically for many years, right? Okay. It does not matter how many Slack messages they send or events they come to on the way there. If they join the community, say nothing, do nothing, but launch a number one book, we've succeeded. That's and, right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> and, and so that's what I try to stay focused on. And it's like, my job is sort of like to, to put a structure in place so that if, if, they're, if they're falling off that making progress toward that goal, we catch them. And if they're not sure they can start, we help nudge them to get started. Yeah, that's it. And, and it's like, okay, and then you've got the onboarding and you've got the heartbeat and you've got the goal. And like, that's it. Everything else is oh. like people getting hung up on like technical details and that don't really matter and getting obsessed about easy to measure vanity metrics and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's uh, so what was it onboarding heartbeat and ah the goal yeah onboarding goal. heartbeat and shared goal yeah yeah uh, and, and then it's like you, you work backwards from that and you go yeah, it's like and that's not easy I'm not saying that's easy but it's like it, it's no different from any other product and you can kind of then like our heartbeat in our group um, right now is we have uh, twice a month we have a guest uh, author mm -hmm. who's like someone famous who comes in and talks about their process and we do a live Q and A. Uh, three times a week, we do writing accountability groups, which is like a one hour live writing session uh, on different time zones. Oh. Every two weeks, we send out a newsletter with like, and we, we try to trick people join, it's not trick, we, we try to deliver three different value propositions with each of our uh, newsletter communications because people join for three different reasons, uh, for inspiration, for education, and for connection, uh, uh -huh. as far as we've seen. And education is kind of like problem solving, like, oh, I'm stuck, how do I deal with this? So it's like yeah, time efficiency. Yeah. Um, and so we try to make sure each communication, each event ticks like some of those boxes, like the, you know, it's like, uh, so there's, there's, I, I actually learned that trick from Minecraft weirdly, uh, because Minecraft. When, when Minecraft <laughs> they do, when they do updates, and this is like a general game design principle that's applied to a lot of long lasting games. So path of exile, Minecraft, uh, world of Warcraft, when they, uh, do their updates, they 
they know what, what their player profiles are. So in Minecraft, it's explorers, builders, uh, fighters, and there's a fourth one that I can't remember, socializers, mm -hmm. I think. Um, and they try to make sure that every update they send has one exciting new feature for each of those groups. Mm -hmm. So the builders always get new blocks. The fighters always get new enemies. The adventurers always get new terrain types. The socializers always get whatever. And if you look at their updates for each each like update, it's always broken into those four groups. They don't call it that. They're just like new thing. But once you understand how they understand their player base, you can see that in their in their update tempo. Path of Exile does the same thing, and all, all of these games do that have been able to last for a decade. Um, and so that really informed my community comms. Also, it's like what are my community profiles? Uh, yeah, I, what what would be the archetypes or the stereotypes that you that you can identify in your community? So we, we've got a group that's like uh, for nonfiction, they're, they're usually between 25 and 40 and they're sort of at the mm -hmm. peak of their career and they want to write a career multiplying book and ah. they come in and they just get shit done. They do uh -huh. not want accountability. They don't need it. They're already organized. They do not want socialization. They've already got their support group They're They don't care. What they want is when they run into a problem, they want a quick canonical answer to get them unstuck so they can continue making progress. So they're actually our lowest engagement, but highest success group within our community. They say nothing and they quietly succeed. Interesting. But how do you know all these things that you just told me? <laughs> I talk to them. I, I run okay. stuff. Okay. So what I did when I was setting up the community in the early days is one of the tricks with customer development, everyone treats customer development like the customer is doing you a favor. Mm -hmm. This is wrong. You want to set up the interaction. Well, I mean, it's not wrong. You, you can do it like that, but it doesn't scale. But you, you can do your uh -huh. early conversations by asking for favors, but it doesn't scale. It's not repeatable. Uh -huh. So for, to make it repeatable, you need to find a way to structure the engagement so that they feel like they're getting a favor from you. Ah, so in the case of my community, I sold myself as a perk. And I said, when you join, you get a 30-minute call with me to talk about your book your goals, your problems. I will help you out yeah. however I can with your book. People show up, they go, yes, I get to talk to Rob. I'm going, yes, new customer about to describe exactly <laughs> why they joined, what they're stuck on and what they need. Um, and so, and again, that's someone paying me a subscription, grabbing my Calendly link and booking a custom call with me. Zero time cost, zero outreach, 100% success rate, right? And, 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 and they're, they're delighted uh, and I'm getting paid for it. Not like a cynical way. I'm not trying to take the piss, but it's like, you, you no, know, it's, it's an like, exchange of value. It's it's amazing exactly. because both people get 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 something out of it. They, they get a ton, and for them, it's incredible. And for me, yeah. it's like that's how I figured out who my uh, community like customer profiles were, uh, and what I should be offering them. You know, and it, it it's what made me happy to be like, there's a group I never hear from, but they're still happy, like. Wow. you know, and, and they're a really important group. And then, so there's like the, that like mid group of just like get shit done. There's a group who's more aspirational. Who's like, I want to write a book someday. Ah, How okay. does it work? Show me what's involved. Show me the process. Okay. They're the most education heavy group. Um, and then at, at the, the other side, you've got a group that is what you might call like the lifestyle authors where they're just having fun writing. You know, they're like, they're, they're, a lot of them are older or retired and they're, they're like, they're writing for the joy of it. Like some of them have written 10 nonfiction books already. It's just what yeah. they do. And for them, the socialization is the most important. And what's interesting is some of them don't finish their books or their books don't commercialize that well, but mm -hmm. they don't care. Mm -hmm. um, they're in it they for the joy They enjoy writing. writing. Yeah. However, they're the most engaged and the most helpful within the community. Uh, within the Slack channel, within the events. And they're the ones who answer all the other questions from other authors. That's interesting. And so they're like the content creators and the supporters. Whereas you see, so you've got like the quietly get stuff done. And then you've got yeah. like the people who are, so it, it, it's a very uh, cohesive ecosystem where everyone's playing a role and helping each other out, but they want different things. And if I tried to get everyone to go to live events, I would lose the get shit done group. Yeah. If we, you know, it's like the, so it's, it, it's kind of interesting because all of the normal product advice, and this is a, a challenge about community, all of the normal product advice is to choose your early adopters and obsess over them and ignore everyone else. My experience so far in community has been that that is not possible. 
Mm-hmm. And that it's more like building a user-generated content business where you're going to have creators and consumers at the very least, and possibly even more. So you need to build like, you need to think more uh, like multi-sided marketplace about how yeah, the different groups yeah. fit together uh, and try to serve all of them or, or like Minecraft or something like that. That's what I think so far about community, but I, I don't know. I'm still figuring it out. <laughs> That's an interesting way to put it because a multi-sided marketplace yeah a community is kind of the like like that um in in principle everyone wants is able to give something and everyone wants something so it's it's a kind of multi-sided marketplace but in a more friendly way right people are a a community is more kind of a friendly marketplace yeah there's there's no money trading hands but there's value trading hands like some people receive socialization and give advice some people uh, receive advice and give back case studies or inspiration. Yeah. Some people, so it's like, it, it's very abstracted, but it, it, there's something there. Uh, I, I'm still working through it, but this is what most of my time is going to at the moment is, is, is figuring out how this works and changing it from like what you said, just help people like that. That doesn't yeah. work for me at all. Like, <laughs> right. I, I, I don't know what, what's going on in my brain, but like, I need systems. I need like flow diagrams. Yeah. I need structures. And so this is how I'm starting to think about it. And it's like, it seems like it's starting to work. We're growing at a decent rate and, you know, that's always nice. Nice. I perceive you as a person who has a, t- a natural talent for breaking things down, right? Observing, uh, making, creating a theory, de-risking the theory and then breaking things down into actionable steps. I really like that. Yeah, I have the advantage of being naturally bad at most, most things, but uh, <laughs> quite, quite, quite willing to spend the time and like like systems oriented uh, i guess yeah. and and so my uh you know like teresa makes fun of me constantly because i can't remember any of the the places we visited or the you know i, I so much gets lost in my memory but if i've got a, a system yeah it, 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 i remember it forever and so that that's the way i try to try to get to wow I'm t- still trying to figure out an, a system for audience development. That's what I do. <laughs> so you helped me so much, Rob, today. I, I enjoyed the conversation so much with you. Um, and so I wish you good luck with all your efforts, with the books, with the communities, with the software product, with everything. And keep me posted if the software really takes off. Um, maybe I, w- I will uh, write a book one day. <laughs> yeah, p- please do. The, the way we're doing it now is, is basically bundled with the community. So. You know, people pay for the community and they get the software for free, or yeah. they can think of it as paying for the software, getting the community for free, whatever. Great. And uh, yeah, it's, it's fun. And certainly if you crack the system for uh, for audience building, that's a pretty important book to write. So I, I hope to see you in the group someday. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Audience Explorer podcast today. You can find me on Twitter at GetTheAudience and you can check out the blog at GetTheAudience.com. If you have any questions about this episode, reach out to me on Twitter or send an email to Matthias at GetTheAudience.com. If you want to support this podcast, please leave a rating in your favorite podcast player app. This will help other founders or creators to find this podcast about developing an audience for their product or service. Thank you very much for listening and see you in the next episode. Bye-bye.